Okay, Nigel. Yes. Here's another thought experiment for you. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> okay, so you're going on going on a journey to an a adventure? new an adventure mm-hmm. on a, to a new land. Like Elon Musk bought you a ticket. You're going on the <laughs> rocket ship to Mars. <laughs> awesome. And so Elon's he's packed up all the the food and the air and clothes and all that stuff. So you don't need to worry about it. But you do get one small box that you can fill with anything else that you want to bring. And you're probably never coming back to Earth. So what are you going to bring with you? Wow, that is tough. MP3 player. (laughs) Got to have my tunes. Tunes, yeah. Yeah. um, Bring like your iPod from... Yeah, my iPod one. <laughs> that is really hard. It's it's really a tough choice. Yeah, I don't know. What about what about you? What would you do? I don't know. I have so much stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I maybe I would bring like like some like a piece of jewelry my mom gave me or something. Mm. Like I don't know, a book that I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah, that's really hard. Yeah, and so that's kind of just like a thought experiment, but there are people who have to make that decision every day. If you think about the, you know, people who are coming to live in the United States, they only have a certain amount of space in their bag um, to choose those special items to bring with them. And they probably won't ever go back to the country that they, they grew up in. So migration, how can archaeologists, how can we study migration in the past and those things that people brought with them. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at the subject of migration, both from like an archaeological perspective, sort of examining the the conversation involving migration and pre-contact Native Americans. We also have some special guests that we're bringing on. (laughs) Very special guests. Very (laughs) special guests that have a direct connection to this subject. And we're going to be having a really wonderful, heartfelt um, little podcast episode here for y'all. So, (laughs) yeah. Pack your bags and come along with us on on the journey to a new land for migration. (laughs) Load up. Grab your... uh, your precious mementos, stow them away because we're going on a journey. Welcome to the Materialist Podcast, episode 13, lucky number 13. Yeah, it's the best one. <laughs> lucky number 13. This is our 13th episode here on the podcast, and we're happy to be bringing it to y'all. Just a heads up, we are still doing social distancing. In- we're still, yeah, socially distant from yeah. But so the audio, uh, you know, there might be some snafus at, because we are coming from across the worldwide webs, but I hope you enjoy the episode that we're bringing to you because it's a special one. But first, <laughs> I'm Nigel Rudolph, public archaeology coordinator with FPAN Central out of Gainesville and Crystal River, of course, <laughs> exclusively out of Gainesville at the moment <laughs> for, um, for a good little bit. And my co-host is... I'm Becky O'Sullivan. I'm the Public Archaeology Coordinator at the West Central Regional Center of FPAN, usually in Tampa on the beautiful USF campus there, but now I'm in Bradenton. Bradenton. Yeah, it's, that's hasn't been too bad. I've kind of claimed an area for my like office desk area, and it's nice. been helpful in my productivity, so I can't complain too much. Yeah, I I actually think I'm being relatively productive. I wouldn't say I'm an extrovert, but I definitely wouldn't say I'm an introvert. And I think this situation is sort of 
definitely pointing out that I'm I'm not a very good introvert. <laughs> I think this is really going to like fundamentally change some of the ways that we all kind of interact with one another. Yeah. I think it kind of has to. I don't know. Well, hopefully <laughs> we'll hopefully see. hopefully our next uh episode, episode 14, one of us can be at the other's fancy little recording studio and we can be yeah. together next time we record. So This is a special episode, listeners, because we are going to be releasing this episode in two days from our recording time. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. Um, On Mother's Day. And so the subject that we're talking about is migration, the archaeology of migration. Becky and I have a a real personal connection to this subject. Well, we're both the children of immigrants yeah, and specifically um, our moms. So it brings together uh, two topics that are interesting for us to talk about. (laughs) We took the time to speak to our mothers, interview our mothers, and I think releasing it on Mother's Day is a really fantastic opportunity for us to to find out more about this really pivotal part of their lives. Yeah, so uh, in our episode today, we'll honor our immigrant mothers and talk about some potential immigrant mothers in the deep past and also how archaeologists study immigration today and all the the mothers that are coming to this country for a, a better life for themselves and their families. So much of the archaeology that we do is really, really contingent on the questions that we ask, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, As archaeologists. And so um, in the past, uh, in the deep time past of archaeology, think about like, you know, archaeologists prior to the mid 20th century, migration was a big issue that archaeologists studied. And it was really a big explanation that archaeologists use for changes in material culture. So if you think of like archaeologists working in like Europe, mm-hmm. right? So they're working on a site, they find a new layer with a new kind of pottery. And so those are the, you know, red pottery people and they came in, you know, or we have, you know, people started making these cylindrical pots and we find them on these sites and those are the beaker people. And like, mm-hmm. that's how, you know, so there's this really huge link between people and the things that they made so much so that like, if we find new things that people made, that couldn't just be the same people making new stuff. It has to be totally new people that came in and like brought this stuff in with them. Right. So, and that in itself seems like a pretty kind of wrong way of looking at things, doesn't it? <laughs> right, yeah. An overly simplistic way of looking at a situation, right? Especially if like stone tools. Oh, yeah. You, know, you have like the archaic stone tools, you know, and these, you know, stemmed points that we have in the Southeast. And that's totally different from these like later like woodland points and so you still kind of get that vibe that like migration vibe that Mm -hmm. you know these are totally different people that are creating these these objects and yeah it's kind of like a lazy way you know to rely on this idea of migration to describe these changes in the material culture that that people are making like so going forward archaeologists were like okay People are not pots. Right. We need to stop thinking about it this way. Um, <laughs> and in some ways, they kind of like threw the baby out with the bathwater. So migra- migration, it kind of fell out of favor as a, a topic of interest for archaeologists to look into. But more and more, archaeologists are starting to, to look at it again in hopefully a more nuanced way. We, you know, we know for a fact that people migrated here uh, across the Bering Land Bridge, right? We know that there's these yeah. mass migrations. We know that... Um, people's moved into different areas. But I think, like you said, the nuanced evidence of that has been a little bit more difficult to uncover. And it might not be as simplistic as these people moved into this one area, pushed out the other people. It may be a little bit more of an integrated uh, perspective rather than, you know, completely replacing. Right. And that, you know, this idea of like multicultural societies and villages, you know, could goes back a long way and that native people were obviously interacting with one another in in lots of different ways in the past. So how can we see that archaeologically? 
not to nerd out here too heavily, but uh, <laughs> here in, in Gainesville, we have a, what they call a Lachua culture site. So, and so one of the old theories for the Alachua people is that there was another group that was here. The Alachua people migrated in from Georgia, pushed out the what we call the Cades Pond or the Hickory Pond people, pushed them out and came in with this all new type of ceramics, right? Because we started finding these, these new types of ceramics. Here in Gainesville, uh, archaeology student Matthew Lyons wrote a, his master's thesis actually in 2019 called The Alachua Tradition of North Central Florida Revisited. Basically what he was doing was that the, it was assumed that the Alachua people were immigrants from Georgia and they moved into Florida displacing a group that was already here. And I guess what he's pointing out is that it may have been more of a question of integration and trade and exchange and less so of a migration. And that that perspective, the migration perspective, was really came up through Gagan and Milanich back in the 1960s and 1970s. So I think just like you said, we're kind of moving out of that perspective of um, that it must be, if there's something new, it must be a new people making it, right? We're, yeah, like when, totally new people came <laughs> yeah. in and they're totally different than the people after that. Right, right. And, you know, and it's complex and it's difficult and especially when, and this is sort of at the root of what we talk about on this podcast, is that we're looking at these objects and we're having them tell the stories of these people that didn't have a written language. And so it's pretty easy how we could misinterpret this stuff. I think certainly the idea of trade and integration is way more plausible than new people coming in and pushing old people out. Right. And it's not just some arcane like argument, right? It has real world implications. Yeah. For, for a lot of things today, if you think about, you know, like with NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation, Repatriation Act. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> um, one of the um, kind of aspects of NAGPRA is trying to connect Native American burials and human remains and the grave goods for those burials with tribes today so that those tribes can have a say in right. what happens to those human remains. And this kind of simplistic idea of migration and tying people to the material culture, if we think about it in this simplistic way, then, you know, these human remains that are 6,000 years old, they made totally different pottery Mm -hmm. than the more contemporary, you know, ancestral groups of the native people today. And so Mm -hmm. how can they have anything to do with one another? Mm -hmm. Um, And so these kind of simplistic ideas about migration can be really damaging to Native people today and allowing them to have, you know, a claim and a say into these people who are their ancestors, even though they're their ancestors from like 6,000 plus years ago. Yeah, and I I really think it's all kind of rooted in this really old (laughs) anthropological concept of like the races of man. I mean, it's all like... I, I don't know. I, I, I find that concept to be unbelievably offensive <laughs> and, and divisive and has prompted so much of the world that we're living in now. And I think that this is like an, an academic continuum of that sort of mentality. And I, I hope that we can start looking at these, these real questions, these serious questions archaeologically in a different, through a different eye. Sure. And just, and I think that's what a lot of the the work now is showing is that it's much more complicated than, you know, anything, any way that we thought about it and that people have always been moving around and interacting with one another in different places, not just throughout the Southeast, but, you know, people in the Southeast with people in the Great Lakes region, people have always been um, traveling and trading and migrating and sharing their ideas. And so there are so many connections in the past, so many immigrants in the past who moved around all these ideas and, and new technologies. And that's exciting to try to learn about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would never question uh, the theories of Gerald Milanich. <laughs> if anybody's listening, I swear to God, I'm not questioning anything like that. What I'm saying is that we need to look at through a more integrated eye and re-examine, which I guess is what several archaeologists and researchers are doing now, which I think is wonderful. 
Right. And then we can also bring the skills that we have as archaeologists to looking at contemporary migration and the experiences of people who are, you know, migrating to the U.S. and to other places, too. You found an article, St. John's River, Fisher, Hunter, Gatherers, Florida Connection to Cahokia, an article that was written by Keith Ashley and Robert L. Thunin. Is that right? Did I say that right? Yeah. Journal of the Archaeological Method and Theory was talking about this connection between native groups that were living along the St. John's River and the massive civic ceremonial center of Cahokia that I had an opportunity to visit last summer. So yeah, so so Keith Ashley, he's an archaeologist at um, University of North Florida in Jacksonville, and his research is always so fascinating. Yeah, Whenever cool I guy. see that he's speaking like at a conference, I always go and hear him talk because his research is really cool, and he's also just a really awesome speaker, and um, his work is really cool. But he recently had this article come out, which fits in with our podcast episode. How convenient. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so he's been the past, you know, However many years been working at the site, the Mill Cove site, which is on the St. John's River, um, kind of Jack- Jacksonville, Florida area. And um, so this site dates to what we call the like Mississippi period. So the kind of late pre-contact, you know, the, these are the people who were here like right before Europeans arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the cool things about this site is that he found, he's found in past work there at, and other sites in that area has found these objects that are not from there. Mm-hmm. They're very specific sorts of material culture that come from this site called Cahokia. Yeah. Um, and Cahokia is, um, if you've ever been to St. Louis, um, it's right across the river from there, uh, there were multiple mounds, huge kind of stepped earthen mounds. Yeah, and, Monk's Mound is 100 feet tall. Yeah, wood hinges, like all mm-hmm. kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and so the Cahokian people also made some, you know, very distinctive, important objects, distinctive kinds of stone tools called Cahokia points. And I'll put a picture on Instagram. These copper, small copper maskets that had these like really long like noses and so these sorts of objects have been found at other sites um, around Cahokia but then also like down the Mississippi River but one of the kind of most further you know furthest afield places where these things have been found is actually at this Mill Cove site and Mount Royal which are two sites on the St. John's River in in Florida. So what his article kind of looks at is you know, one of the things, one of the ways these things have been thought about in the past is that this has to be from trade or like down the line, people are trading objects from far away. But he's kind of flipping it and saying, no, we have to think, we have to think about this as, are these objects evidence of migration, at least of some Cahokians who either came to this Mill Cove site or some of these St. John's River people who maybe went to Cahokia and then came back and, and brought it with them. But I think it's interesting because it kind of it has some implications for some of the other things we'll talk about today. But, you know, these objects are rare, they're of high quality, and they're also small and kind of easy to pack. They're portable. Right? <laughs> yeah, very portable. So perfect for an immigrant who's traveling however many hundreds of miles to to get from what is now St. Louis to what is now Jacksonville area. Yeah, that's a long canoe paddle. Yeah, and so um, it's just interesting to think about. I mean, think about, you know, someone, an immigrant around uh, 1100 AD who is canoeing and walking through, you know, different areas and eventually ends up in, you know, what is now Northeast Florida and what was the journey like, you know, for, for that person. And then to see the, the evidence of that in these, these objects that archeologists found, you know, um, yeah. hundreds of years later, um, it's just interesting to think about the journey those people took and the journey those objects took across the Southeast, you know, so long ago. Well, in in the abstract for that article, it, there's this a really interesting sentence um, 
those materials and objects crafted in the American bottom underwent their own metaphorical diaspora as they traveled far afield, creating webs of social, geographical, and temporal relationships, yet in the process maintained a genealogical connection to Cahokia. With these objects that immigrants bring with them, not only are they bringing something with them from home that maybe they couldn't have in the place they're going to, they're bringing a piece of their home with right. them. They're bringing, you know, an object that speaks to that that connection to home and marks them as different from the place that, that they're going. And immigrants today, you know, kind of do that same thing in a lot of ways. One of the arguments that people could make is like, oh, well, that stuff was just traded. Like nobody from Cahokia actually came to what is now Florida, right? Um, so, you know, how do you get... How do you get around that? How do you how do you yeah. figure out if something, you know, if a person actually came from that place or if it was just kind of trade and interaction or down the line trade? Oh, there are ways, Miss Becky. <laughs> there are ways. The environment that we live in, we suck up bits of that. <laughs> we absorb parts of that environment and they're in our bodies permanently. So what's really interesting about some of these, the human remains that have been found at some sites here in Florida, hundreds, if not thousands of years later, that were actually able to analyze the human remains and, and look at isotopes that truly show where these folks grew up and spent the bulk of their time, right? Yeah, especially when you're looking at like teeth, right? Because our, or if you think of your adult teeth, they're forming in your yeah. childhood. And so your body is taking in those specific, you know, different oxygen and other like isotopes Um, And it's all kind of recorded in your teeth. Yeah, so let me read this real quick. Recent stable isotope studies have demonstrated that throughout pre-Columbian times, individuals who spent their early years in locations far from Florida were laid to rest in Florida mounds. For instance, along the Middle St. Johns River, two individuals from the Middle Archaic Harris Creek site were interpreted based on oxygen isotope values as immigrants who originated in non-local areas, perhaps as far north as Tennessee or Northern Virginia. So unlike material culture, this is like real evidence that it wasn't just the objects that were moving from person to person to person all the way down, which, you know, if you really think about that, that's sort of ridiculous. (laughs) No offense. Here, take this. Um, (laughs) Give it to the next person down the line. You know, it's it's far more plausible that people were were migrating with these objects um, in their possession, just like we had talked about that. It's a human trait, a human thing to bring these objects with you. And so we know that at least with these two individuals at this particular site, these folks were coming from someplace else and lived most of their life in that other location. Right. And, you know, when it's the people moving and not the pots, those people bring with them the knowledge of how to make all different things, different ways to see the world, different languages. um, And they bring that to the new communities that they come to. And they they change the way that their their neighbors think about the world. Yeah, for the better. So all this talk of, you know, prehistoric and contact period, Mississippian period migration, really, if we if we hit fast forward a little bit. <laughs> yeah, fast forward a couple. <laughs> yeah. To the 1970s and 80s. <laughs> right. When did you come to the U.S. and where did you come from? So I came to the U.S. in January 1982 and I came from England. And where did you come? Like, where did you arrive when you when you came to the States? Uh, well, I flew from um, London Heathrow Airport into um, Miami. The first trip was December 4, 1967. And I still have my Peruvian passport. <laughs> oh yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. and then uh, when I went to California, it's, it was February 27, 1970. That's when I went to help Julia with uh, Juju and come back in February 5th, 71. Oh, oh wow, yeah, you stayed a year. Yeah. Um, wow. I bet there's lots of Volkswagens out there. 
oh yeah, Mustangs, you know. Right. Because that's, that's the one that Scott had. Wow. Now, when we, we uh, came to stay, it was June 23rd, 1973. And I had a, a special visa. It's called the fiancé visa. Oh. Then I, I had to get married within 45 days or they sent me back. Wow. Uh, so I married August 4th. Fiancé visa. Yeah, and they don't have those anymore. <laughs> it's the same, right? It's the same as it, even if you look, migrants are migrants um, from as far back as we have evidence for till now. They, they're moving from one place to another and bringing sentimental, personal items with them to keep that connection to where they came from. Yeah, and I think that's why we really wanted to interview our moms for this. And I don't know if you've ever talked to your mom about this kind of I hadn't. I really hadn't either, but the more we kind of thought about this topic, the more interesting it was to think, you know, well, what did my mom choose to bring with her um, when she came to this country? Um, And so it was really nice to get to, to talk to her about that a bit. Yeah, I I did have some little special things. Um, one of them was the necklace that um, was my grandmother's that my mom had given me. Mm-hmm. And um, also a few other little um, items that, um, that belonged to my grandparents. So I remember that actually in my suitcase, I had a wooden jewelry box and in it, I had a few little things like there was a silver um, napkin ring that had belonged to my grandfather (laughs) and a, ridiculously, I don't know why, but I'd also put in this little silver butter knife, which, um, had also been, been my grandmother's, and and I remember that as I went through, as the my bag went through the X-ray at Heathrow Airport, that they pulled it out <laughs> because they thought it was uh, it was a knife that I was, could stab somebody with. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> You brought a silver butter knife and the napkin ring. <laughs> why did you want to bring, like, why did you bring those with you? I mean, I guess I can, I understand, like, you know, bring, like, jewelry. Well, I, like, those, those, I, that was what actually, I, I, I actually had those in my suitcase when I came. So that was, like, um, on your, like. There, there were certain things that, you know, were, that my mother had given me. She, for some reason, she, she just decided. Well, you know that I could, I could take certain things that that had been hers, and um, you know, to put in my home when I got here to the states, just to kind of remind me of my family. And so you brought like a lot of things that were really like like mementos, like um, family. I did, yeah. And then into the box that I packed that was sent to me once I got here. I mean, I had things like um, photographs, you know, photograph albums and um, some vinyl records. Uh-huh. Um, and, and there were some more China things that, um, you know, were, were sort of family heirlooms that had been given to me also. I, I had sent over. No, it's also, you know, I had a little collection of some little china boxes and things like that that I picked up over the years and and I brought those with me. Mm-hmm. So you said the jewelry box, like the carved wood, is that that one that you've always had? Like, right, yes. That mm-hmm. one, that's like the yeah. ornately like carved one? Right. Mm-hmm. 
That's sweet though. I didn't know about the um the napkin ring and the the little butter knife. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Where are those? I don't know if I've seen those before. Yeah, that they're in the in the cabinet. Oh, okay. So did you did you bring any um uniquely English things? Did you bring like some proper tea bags or like anything mm -hmm. like that with you too? No, you no, I food? didn't I didn't bring any I didn't bring any food items or anything like that. Yeah. No. So, I mean in my box that I sent over I did have my I had my grandmother's um complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> like bring the knowledge of the old like country. A poetry book. That, yeah. 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 <laughs> because those were those were things that were that meant a lot to me. I was really surprised. Yeah. I never knew that that <laughs> that that was you know. I mean, I knew she brought like she had stuff sent over, and like mm. you know, she brought a bunch of stuff with her. But what she decided to bring with her like on her person yeah um i had no idea mm -hmm. and i think it, it speaks back to all these like it makes me think of all these you know immigrants of the past and i think the people who came you know to ellis island or you yeah. know you know all you have with you is like a, a suitcase and so these objects that you bring are small and powerful and full of um you know, memories of the family that you're, um, you're leaving behind. These things are very personal, very specific to who they are. And her leaving without this object, you know, she had to have it with her and, and it's a yeah. butter knife, you know, it's something that seem seemingly insignificant to everybody right. else. Well, and it's objects that don't make sense. Like yeah. if you were thinking of it from an archaeologist standpoint, you know, it makes sense. Like you bring your clothes, you bring like the things that you need. Makes sense that you bring like jewelry or objects that are like intrinsically valuable, right? But then you see these other objects, like these outlier objects that don't make sense. Like why yeah. do you need to bring with you one napkin ring and <laughs> like an engraved butter knife? Like what is that going to do for you? Like, <laughs> right. The only way that it makes sense is if you look at it through the the emotional tie yeah. and like the family tie. And so I think it's important as archaeologists, when we're thinking about these sites, that when we find these objects that don't make sense, those are the ones that are like the most powerful. Yeah. Um, and those are the ones that had the most meaning probably for that person who brought it with them in the past. And I think with my mom, it, it was both the things that she did bring and the things that she didn't bring um, that she yeah. wasn't able to bring. She, she had the travel really light when she moved here permanently. So what she did bring was these, these items of domesticity, like she was going, moving to Florida to get married. Um, and so she moved with a tablecloth. Um, napkins that she made. Um, but what she didn't get to bring was almost just as touching. I really didn't have anything besides my jewelry. As mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of good jewelry. Mm -hmm. And um, I only had limited space to bring. And I knew if I'm going to move it, I had to as uh, get along whenever whatever I find around there, and, mm -hmm. and you know, so I brought my clothes, mm -hmm. you know, not most of any were too warm for, for <laughs> Florida, <laughs> yeah, <that's funny. laughs> and uh, some things that I made, mm. like what little uh, I made tablecloth and uh, some napkins and. I brought presents for everybody in his family. Hmm. What did you bring? Um, I brought Granny. Looted, looted artifacts from Incan sites? <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Scott do. had it all. No, I didn't. By that time, you couldn't. You couldn't get those couldn't anymore. get those out yeah. anymore. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, just a small, a couple of, things that my parents give us for the, as a wedding presents mm. and um, and just 
and that was it. It mm -hmm. was, and I had a beautiful guitar I wanted to bring, but I couldn't. It was nice space. Oh, no. I didn't have any. Other than that, it was just yeah. what I had. They was really mine. I just wanted to bring, but it was more clothes and, and uh, things for the house. Do you still have some of the jewelry that you brought? Yes. Yeah. I do. I do. But it's nice. Yeah. 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 And was that yours that you purchased in Peru or is that um, Mama Eloisa's? Well, or is... well, no, it was given uh, presents, mm -hmm. birthday presents for family, boyfriends. <laughs> hey, that's okay. Hey. hey. <laughs> yeah. You know. And you and Dad it's, have been married for. 47? Seven, the psychist, yes. So I think you can talk about your old boyfriends. Yeah, old friends. <laughs> I think it's, it's fine. Give me good, good jewelry. Yeah. You know, okay. 18 care. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> I was not going to leave those. So you asked your mom very similar questions that as I asked mine. I was surprised at the uh, similar responses. Yeah, so I mean... My mom came to the States from England in 1982. It's not like she didn't come from, you know, somewhere that was so very different. Like she mm -hmm. didn't have to contend with, you know, a different language or anything, anything like that. But yeah, it was still interesting to hear all the similarities between their stories um, and how they both, um, I don't know, just the the pressure to kind of like fit in and kind yeah. of slink back into the, you know, to kind of like hide a little bit and not feel so different, not feel like you're kind of like sticking out, like try to kind of assimilate as much as you can, like as quickly as you can. Yeah, that was definitely the case with my mom. She didn't use the word assimilation, but it's certainly what she was getting at, that when she came here, she was a native Spanish speaker. So when she came here, the language barrier was a, a, was a big concern for her. And, and I think that's, that kind of prompted her to try her best to, <laughs> to kind of keep her head down and assimilate as quickly as possible. But you know, luckily her, her sister was already here. And, you know, when she came here to live permanently, she, you know, married into a family that was very accepting. So I think one of the questions that I really wanted to ask my mom, what were her feelings when she came here? What, what were her apprehensions? Now, my mom um, had been here a couple of times before she moved here permanently. So I was kind of bouncing back and forth between her initial visit in the late 60s to visit her sister, who was living here as, a, as an exchange student. She had come from Peru um, as an exchange student. So my mom came to visit her in Tampa. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was kind of bouncing back and forth between those experiences that she had when she initially came here and her apprehensions. And then to the point when she came here when, again, finally to live permanently as an immigrant and her hopes and again her fears and her uh, her apprehensions for coming and making this dramatic change the only thing when i got married is i i was i didn't know what to expect of your dad's family i didn't mm -hmm. know any of them so that was a little worry but then they were welcoming and everything was fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, my, me being able to communicate freely my thoughts, and it, since I didn't, my English was not very good looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was hard. It was hard in that time. Yeah. But I felt that I really was lucky because then I, we moved next to Joni's place and Joni and we were friends and then we ended up in the school at the center, which mm -hmm. it was a good, a, a good thing. And so I think things came along easily. Yeah. You yeah. know, I didn't have to struggle. I'm, I'm sure there are other people who had hard time, a harder time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and I mean, there definitely are. Um, yeah. What were your, like, initial feelings on the way? Like, were you apprehensive? Like, were you hopeful? Like, how do, I don't know, what, what kind of was going through your yeah, mind, I, I guess? <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to know now. I, um, I should have been more apprehensive, probably. You know, I, I just felt I was very hopeful and excited. You know, it just seemed like a whole new um, episode of my life was going to open up. Well, yeah. And I mean, didn't yeah. you, you like sold a bunch of like your stuff and like, you know, quit your job? Oh, like, yeah, because like... I had really, I'd, I'd give I'd left my job as a nurse and um, I'd really given away or sold like all my furniture and most of my belongings. Another thing that we asked them about was what was their reaction once they got here, right? America is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. You know, they both came into Miami, which was really interesting. And, you know, <laughs> it's like... Leaving behind the... Miami's wild. You, like, getting rid of your stuff, saying goodbye to your family, yeah. like, coming to this whole new place. Yeah. And so, I, you know, we asked them about what they thought of what was their initial reaction when coming here as well. Like England is like super different, but it is you know it is different. It is different. So yeah. what, what was that like to kind of navigate all these new sorts of uh, objects or just slightly different sorts of things? I guess. I mean, I had been here a couple of times before, so it wasn't um, total shock or anything. But definitely, I felt very very homesick. Yeah. And um, I mean, I had been living in this kind of really kind of country area over in England, you know, green fields and sheep and, and then to come here and live in South Florida, you know, in the blazing heat. With palm trees. <laughs> palm trees, yeah. And then uh, a lot of just different attitudes about things. Um, I found, I mean, most people were very friendly, but I don't know, it's hard to say. It was, it was um, different. definitely different, not like <laughs> home. <laughs> and, and then I had been used to working in the National Health Service. Mm -hmm. And when I came here, and eventually after about six months when I was able to work in a hospital, <clears throat> um, you know, I found people here thought that, you know, socialized medicine was like terrible and, um, you know. I still think that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a whole lot of different attitudes to things, you know, political things and just a lot very different in that time there were no really markets like mm -hmm. we had now mm -hmm. in lima they were just the mercado the big place that you buy everything mm -hmm. so yes that was something that uh, that i enjoyed and i like it and that was good because i could choose things that were no actually the same seasoning for the food, but <laughs> but it, it was uh, it was something that I could make whatever I had in mind. Right, right. That. So all seasons, all, things were available. The seasons the and the, yeah. and the different kind of vegetables. Mm. And the thing is that impressed me is green. Oh, you see yeah. green everywhere. If mm. you if you remember Lima, you don't yeah. see much of the green. It was gray. Yeah, there's not <laughs> and, a lot of and green. The green and the quietness. Mm. The the quiet because uh, you know in Lima we live in the city. Yeah, so for my mom, you know, too, it was a little different as well because my dad is was also an immigrant to this country. Mm. So that was, you know, he had a bit more like understanding of what it was like for her you know maybe right. he had been here for decades before she got here too 
my mom's mom, my grandmother passed shortly after my mom moved here. Um, so that kind of made an already difficult situation of her, you know, coming here and um, trying to assimilate and trying to, you know, start down this road of being an American. She, um, she told me the date that she actually became a citizen, which was really wonderful. Uh, it was December 15th, 1993. So after 20 years, she became a citizen of this country. So I imagine, I, you know, I try to think about what her mindset would have been is that she just left her family. She was now married, living in Florida, living in Bradenton, Florida, <laughs> <laughs> actually just down the way from where you're at right now. Um, and, and knowing that her mom had passed away, one of the things that I thought was touching for both your mom and my mom is, is when we asked about what they did to bring them comfort when they were here to kind of connect them to home, to help with homesickness. That was a really kind of wonderful segment too. Mm -hmm. you think this is, so, I mean, the things you brought, I mean, did they help you with your like homesickness or anything? Um, I mean, I liked the items. They were, they reminded me of my family, but yeah. They didn't really help me with my homesickness. I, I think, you know, reading my books and things like that and listening to my music, that kind of helped me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I, I really felt like at one point uh, I could have jumped in the sea and started swimming, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck here now. Well, the good thing was that your your dad also had come from Ireland originally, mm -hmm. and so he he did totally understand what it right. what it feels like to come from another country. And yeah, you weren't like yeah, ninety day fiance or like anything. No, like that. <laughs> <laughs> no he he t he totally understood. So that really yeah. helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that made a difference, I'm sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we were able to, you know, go back and visit and have family members come and visit us too, mm -hmm. which yeah. helped a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Music was always important to to kind of give me that that the connection mm. to the time when I was there, listening some music, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I had little things that it will. I put in a special place that I it will remind me and and made me that give me that little comfort, mm -hmm. you know, for a while. Then mm -hmm. things were okay, mm -hmm. but more than anything was listen to music and of course I love singing and I was singing the songs that my mom that she likes and that I enjoyed them of course it made me cry because <laughs> I it, it, it comforted me listen the songs I used to sing for her in back home did you have them on record or how were you listening um, to them? I had records I had records. It's uh, maybe 45s, those mm. little ones. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened to them now. <laughs> but, yeah, I had those on the record. There were no um, stations then that will play Spanish music then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or at least Peruvian music. You want to sing something for me? Uh, well, <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> My voice is not like it used to be. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like most of the objects they brought weren't very comforting. <laughs> I mean, they were a reminder of home, and maybe that's kind of painful, but for both of them, you know, getting to listen to the music that they loved yeah. and the vinyl records and stuff they brought with them was what really brought the most comfort this was this is a connection to my mom's home you know mm -hmm. and and i'll obviously never see the situation through my mom's eyes but it's it was really beautiful and touching and it kind of made things 
it, it kind of filled in a bunch of holes that I had for those early years. Well, and I don't know. I mean, have you thought about it before the effect that having like an immigrant parent has on you and the way you see the world? I mean, for both of us, obviously we grew up, we were born in America, yeah. raised in American culture, but mm-hmm. there, I'm sure there are things that both of us do that are different from your typical American or shaped by the influence of our, of our mothers. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't think I appreciate, you know, I was like a rebellious punk kid who didn't want anything to do with anything to do with my parents. <laughs> so when I was, you know, a teenager and younger and I, you know, I wanted to be my own person. Um, and it wasn't until much later that I, I realized that my own person was a manifestation of those those experiences that my mom had and, and that culture and I am I embraced it you know I, I I I dove right into the pool of that that world and that culture I was raised in a very sort of Eurocentric household though we were playing Peruvian music and eating you know Peruvian food a, a lot of the time it was very much I very much always felt like I was raised in a very American world, or maybe that's just the way I saw it. I I don't know. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I feel the same. And it's like my mom's English. My dad was Irish. It's not, you know, they weren't, you know, speaking a different language in the home or doing Mm -hmm. anything like that. But I definitely, um, I just think it made me more aware of differences in culture as a kid and picking up on those things. And I don't think it's a surprise that we both ended up as anthropologists right because from the moment you know we came into this world we're set up to notice these differences and similarities uh, with people and that's been what we chose to do for our careers yeah 100 (laughs) percent. that is that is the reason why i went i went into this field absolutely and i i wish i could go back and smack nigel of the past and make him realize um realize some of these things earlier, but you know, it, that's my story that I'll be telling my daughter later on. Um, my mom as an immigrant um, and my mom's story has certainly shaped my worldview now and, and the experiences that she had and the experiences that I participated in mm-hmm. with her as an immigrant living in <laughs> the South um, has shaped my worldview now. I'm really lucky for that. Yeah, I feel thankful for that every day well that's it mom that's all i have oh okay oh my gosh good. Yeah, it was easy yeah. huh? <laughs> that was easy like i knew i was gonna cry in this interview but i didn't think like a no, butter knife no, this freaking napkin ring would like make me cry <laughs> <laughs> this is my grandmother's butter knife i'm looking for a new life oh mom that was good i love you (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness so so that's it that's it all right mama that's it that's all i wanted to ask okay sweetheart thank you i appreciate i hope i'm helping you it seems to me that you're doing a lot of work and i wish i had more excited things to tell you no that's not what that's not what this is about it's it's about you it's about honoring our mothers who came here and came to this country and yeah yeah it's not about excitement it's not a it's about every day actually didn't get get a boat and the boat tipped over and i had to swim all the way to miami (laughs) (laughs) that's good though i'm glad you didn't do that because that would have made that would have changed your whole story you know it that's true that's true (laughs) but no it's wonderful i love hearing about it and i would love to talk to you more about it that would be nice anytime i got plenty time you know (laughs) both of our moms were you know they had their own struggles yeah get here but they were privileged in a way that they were able to come to this country through easier means come on airplanes and get you know papers so that they can work and live here and then become citizens that's not always the case but that's not everyone is so lucky so one of the 
examples, you know, archaeology examples we wanted to end on is an archaeologist, an anthropologist who is studying undocumented migration along the, the southwest border using the skills that he has as an archaeologist. And I think it's just absolutely fascinating work that he does. Yeah, important work, important work. Dr. Jason DeLeon is the, a professor of archaeology and anthropology at UCLA, and he's also the director of the Undocumented Migration Project. He's also a recipient of the MacArthur um, Genius Grant for his work. And so, you know, he's got a book out called The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. He's got, you know, there's a really great website about the Undocumented Migration Project. He's done lots of interviews about his work. And there's a whole Uh, National Geographic Nat Geo episode that focused on his work. Yeah. And so, you know, we think about archaeology as like this kind of study of like arcane things in the past. What his work really shows is that we can use archaeology to explore these like contemporary issues, like people who are trying to to come to this country, even without, you know, the documents um, that they need to find a better life here. And yeah. so we can highlight the issues that they face and the injustices that they face. Dr. DeLeon's work aims to humanize these people and to bring to light their stories of these migrants along the southwest border through like ethnography and talking to people, but also through actually going out in the desert and finding the objects that people have left behind on their journey. It's it's amazing and important work. We need to humanize these situations. These are these aren't invaders. <laughs> They're not this isn't unprecedented. We've been talking this entire episode about how unprecedented migration is. This is Tell Me More from NPR News. I'm Celeste Headley. Michelle Martin is away. Anthropologists and archaeologists, of course, study the way that groups live throughout history. That's exactly what Jason DeLeon is doing. Although he's not looking at ancient Egypt or some other long-lost civilization, he heads the Undocumented Migration Project. And that project looks at some of the things immigrants crossing the border between Mexico and the United States leave behind. And he's trying to find out what that can teach us Crossing the border seems like such an exceptional event. What do later generations learn from these artifacts that you've collected? Well, you know, we've been migrating for the entire history of our species, and we've been leaving stuff behind uh, throughout the process. So looking at the material traces of immigration today is quite similar to if I were studying uh, ancient Sahara crossings or the westward expansion in the 18th and 19th century in the United States. And so him examining what these folks brought with them from their nation of origin, trying to come in to to do what, as far as I'm concerned, most immigrants want to do is that to make a better life for themselves and their family, coming into this country, risking their lives, risking death, crossing the desert, risking capture, risking getting shot to come and start at the bottom of the food chain in this country It's really fascinating some of the things that he has recovered. A lot of the objects that he and his students find are the same or very similar. Like they find a lot of water bottles, right? Because you're, you know, people are walking through the Sonoran Desert. You need to bring water with you. So they find lots of water bottles, find lots of sneakers and shoes, obviously backpacks that people were toting their stuff with. Um, And so a lot of the material culture they find is very much the same. But then there's also these objects that are different, the the small objects that that people bring with them to their their new life. And I think that those are the most touching and heartbreaking sometimes. Yeah, absolutely heartbreaking. So the, the Undocumented Migration Project, they've got an Instagram page. They also put together museum exhibits that travel, um, have been to lots of different museums in the Southwest and exhibitions planned for the future after we're all out of lockdown. Yeah. But um, I was looking through their, their Instagram feed and one of the things that they do in the project is to document obviously objects that people left behind in a kind of archeological way. Um, and one of the objects that they documented was this, a doily, like a piece of fabric that is embroidered and it says sueña conmigo, so dream with me. So think about, you know, someone packing up their bag um, in Mexico and putting that 
in there along with their water and their food that they need to survive and then setting off on this journey into you know unknown hostile kind of lands to try to to get to this better life and i think that's that's what archaeology is all about is how can we use material culture that people left behind whether knowingly or unknowingly to try to tell the stories that popular histories leave out to tell the stories of people that um that those in power don't care about and to me dr de leon's work is what all archaeologists should be doing and I think that's a real powerful and wonderful place to round out the episode. Thank you, Becky, for once again <laughs> going on this journey with me. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> I'm glad that our moms came to this country so that me too. We can make this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I really quickly, my one thing that my mom said was that she apologized for not having her story be more exciting, right? <laughs> um, and I was like, that's not what this is about, right? And, and, and excitement in our modern lives comes in these little tiny sort of segments. And then there's these swaths of ordinary mon- mundane life, right? And so mm-hmm. we, we have had exciting lives. My mom's story is exciting. And if it was anything different, it would have changed and I might not be in it. <laughs> right. Exciting and so brave. I yeah. mean, someone who decides that they're going to leave behind everything they know and go for something totally different. Yeah. You know, yeah. think how brave both of our moms are. Yeah. So we love you, mom. <laughs> we love you, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you listeners for coming on this journey with us, talking about our moms and migration. And it's a really important subject. And I'm glad that we, we took it up. You can find uh, the Materialist podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and Spotify, as well as other social medias, Instagram and the Facebook. Like us and share. It's really important for the social media world. Uh, we love social media interaction. So shoot us, a, shoot us a message. Give us a shout. We've gotten a lot of good uh, feedback. Yes, and thanks to all of our listeners who showed up for our podcast meetup with the Florida Museum of Natural History. It was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, that was great. A good time. Yeah, that was great. That was great. You can always reach Becky or I at materialistpodcast at gmail.com. So shoot us an email. Um, Big thank you to USF and the USF Department of Anthropology. Uh, Thank you to FPAN. If you'd like more information on FPAN, go to fpan.us. As always, thank you to Have Gun, Will Travel for the use of their song, Silver in the Age of Opulence. If you'd like more information about Have Gun, Will Travel, you can find them on Facebook at HGWT Music and on the web at HGWTmusic.com. Big thank you to my mom, uh, Rosa Rudolph. And big thank you to my mom, Jean O'Sullivan. <laughs> if there's anything special you'd like us to cover, actually, nobody's ever taken us up on this, but I would, it would be really fun to, you know, do a special request uh, subject for the podcast. So give us a shout. You can reach us again on email or any, any possible myriad of different ways. Make sure to go check out our Instagram. You can see pictures of things yeah. that our moms brought and pictures of all kinds of different things that we talked about in the episode today and in our past episode. Yep. Everything that we've talked about, including all the articles and Instagram links and all that stuff is going to be in the show notes. Well, read the show notes. There's lots of great information. I'll be putting that together. And uh, this episode, it is... 5 8 2020 it will be released on mother's day in two days <laughs> i promise and we'll catch you on the flippity flip bye, bye. I want people to really understand that thousands have died. There are thousands of unidentified bodies that, that have um, that it will never be identified. The people who have died in this during this process, and this happens on U.S. soil. I mean, more people have died crossing the U.S.-Mexico border than in, than died in 9/11. And um, wow. if you look at, um, we should be we should be ashamed and shocked, and we 
you know, if you took these 3,000 bodies, you know, 5,000 bodies, however, you know, depending on who you ask, and you put them in downtown San Jose, right, or you put them in, in you know, in, in some other part of the U.S., it would be immediately deemed a humanitarian crisis. But the fact that this happens in the middle of nowhere, people don't see it, these are oftentimes, you know, undocumented Latinos that, that a certain segment thinks is not um, worthy of care, people are just like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. Illegal border crossers, right? They broke a law, kind of thing. Or I don't want to hear about it. But I, I think we need to hear about it, and we need to, um, we need to be inspired to take action, because it's a troubling thing, and we should be really ashamed that our country does these things to people. We should be ashamed we do this to each other. I mean, at, at just a basic human level. Let us be lovers. We'll marry our fortunes together. Some real estate here in my bag So we bought a pack of cigarettes And this is pies And walked off to look for America Kathy, I said as we bought a degree this shipping seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America Laughing on the bus Playing games with the faces she said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy I said be careful, his bow tie is really a camera Toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in my room She read her magazine And the moon rose over an open field Kathy, I'm lost, I said Though I knew she was sleeping I'm empty and aching and I don't know Cars on the New Jersey turnpike, they've all come to look for a man.